Well, I want to talk about the snow leopard today. The ever elusive snow leopard that he's supposedly out there, but we can't find him or you see him, you spot him and then he runs off. Uh, not exactly the snow leopard, but a snow leopard, if you will. And that snow leopard is something that maybe some of y'all have figured it out, know where it's at, know where to get to it and find it and discover it, make it a part of you. And that that is what in one word is called happiness. What's it going to take for me to get to a spot that I have renewable, sustainable, life-giving happiness? I mean, that sounds so simple rolling off the tongue, but sometimes it is so elusive in our lives. But yet our nation was built upon the Declaration of Independence that said, we believe. We believe certain things. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and that we endowed by their creator with certain unenable rights that among these are life, liberty, and say it with me, the pursuit of happiness. We have a country that was built on the belief that we have the right to pursue happiness. And I think that that is absolutely correct. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I thank our founding fathers for creating a nation with that as its bedrock. But at the same time, I want us to understand that this is not just an American thing, that this is actually a God thing. That God actually wants you to be happy. Now, it's not his chief aim in life to make you happy, all right? His chief aim is glory, his glory. But in his glory, in his awesomeness, in his incredible beauty, he sees beauty in you being happy. And that's one of the things he wants for us. That's one of the things he prescribes for us. In Psalm 32, David had been racing, running from God, all that kind of stuff, doing his own thing, hiding from God for over a year. And finally, he broke Finally, he broke, and when he broke, he got on his knees. He prayed to God, God, help me in this darkness. Lift the weight off my shoulders. You read it for yourself, Psalm 32. But this is how he opens it up. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven, whose wrongs are pardoned. I tell you what, whenever you want to see a weight come off somebody's shoulder, whenever they are living in shame, they're living in guilt, they're living in hidden sins, and you see that come off their shoulder because they walk into a relationship with God and he sets them free, happy is not descriptive enough, okay? Not only there, there's other times. In Deuteronomy, there's another time when he said this, happy are you, O Israel. We are, the, if you will, the people of God. So the people of God, happy are you, people of God, who is like you. When we're like God, we're happy. Oh, a people saved by the Lord. Whenever Jesus was giving his one and only message that we have full length recorded in the scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, three chapters of all of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, you opens it up in the very opening line that he gives to his disciples. He said happy. He says blessed. So a lot of translations say blessed, but literally the word means happy. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. About, I don't know, maybe nine, ten times he says blessed are you. Happy are you. Happy are you. And he literally lays it out. Almost a progression into happiness. So I'm saying all of this to say that guys, gals, listen up. Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't take a synthetic, man-made, substitute form of imitation happiness. Get the real stuff, okay? When you get the real stuff, the old stuff 
will fade away and you will forget it in a heartbeat. Now, some people say this is how you get happiness. It's all mindset. You just have the right mindset. Mindset is everything today. Mindset is the buzzword of today. If you'll have the right mindset, you will have happiness. It's just mind over matter. You just need to choose happiness. And that may help. Certainly a negative attitude. You know, some people brighten up the room when they leave the room. So, uh, you know, certainly a, a, a positive attitude, well, it, will, it will do wonders for you. But I don't know that it will give you happiness, sustainable, endearing happiness. Happiness is a destination for some people. Now, when you think about destination, I, I'm thinking about over there. You know, when, it, when it's over there, I'll have happiness. Irma Bombeck wrote a great book years and years ago. Years ago, She said, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. Think about that one. If you're kind of that person who thinks, if I can get over there, then I will be happy. If I can live in that subdivision, if I can have that job, if I can make that amount of money, all, whatever it is, it's, it's over there. It's never here where we're at. Then we're struggling with this. Happiness is more, more of whatever, more time, more, more freedom, more, more money, more power, more influence. Happiness is more fill in the blank. That's what a lot of people have made it to be. But I want to propose to you that that is absolutely a synthetic man-made version that might give you some pop-up, pop-up happiness, some dopamine drip of the brain maybe is going to give you that, but it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be reproducible. It's not going to be something that's going to go the distance. How do you get there? Yale University. Now, this is not, this is an Ivy League university. This is the gifted and talented. This is the the well-resourced people. Yale University in 2017, the number one course on campus that undergraduates signed up for, it closed, they signed up for and closed, was Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. It was all about how to get and achieve happiness. Now, why did they do that? They offered that class. You go and dive on into the article. They offered that class because in 2013, half of the college students in the undergraduate program sought mental health care from the university. The most gifted and talented students in our nation, the most resourced people in our world, are going to a university and they're not happy. What is it going to take to get there? Consider the wise King Solomon. Take your Bibles, find the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been there. We started there last week. We'll be there for several months because we're going to be unpacking it from a memoir, if you will, of the wise King Solomon. Last week, we kind of laid the, the foundation for the series of just what it means to wake up without margin. And that means to wake up exhausted. You just, you can never get enough. You can never get enough on the calendar. You can never do enough for the kids. You can never make them happy. You can never be happy. And, and it goes on and on. That was last week's, his philosophical lay, laying out framework, okay? This week, chapter 2, is his autobiography. Basically what he does in this chapter is he writes out his, why he came to this conclusion, how he struggled with his own form of happiness. And yet he is a very successful king, born with a silver spoon in his mouth? Absolutely. Born to King David, the most powerful, the most revered king of Israel. That was his daddy. Daddy leaves him a kingdom in the black, not in the red, leaves him with a plan for the future, not clueless about the future, leaves him with a temple nearly built, at least nearly funded. And I mean, everything is up and to the right with this guy. But yet we'll find in yet in Solomon's own life, 
Chapter 2, verse 23. Don't miss this. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Let that sink in a little bit. Successful King Solomon, born heir to the throne, silver spoon in his hand, promise, 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 opportunity, opportunity. Everything's up and to the right. Everything's going in his way. This guy ought to sleep like a baby, which I've never understood that statement because babies sleep and cry all night long. But sleep like a baby. Supposed to sleep good. Sleep peaceful. This guy can't rest. He is laying awake at night. He's going to bed at night. He's got so many things on his plate. He, he has to take a pill to go to sleep. Anybody identify with that? Don't raise your hand. And you wake up in the middle of the night, you have to take another pill to get you back asleep. Then you have to take pills all day long to keep you awake or five-hour energy drinks so that you can stay awake, so that you can go to bed at night, so that you have to take another pill to go to sleep again because your body is never shutting down. It's like ongoing, going, going, gone. And what does Solomon say about all this? 39 different times, this also is vanity. It's literally the next statement. Solomon is writing the memoirs of his life, and he's saying, yes, everything's good. Yes, I've got, I 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 got. But I'm exhausted. And it's all vain. Who is this Solomon? Again, he is a powerful, influential king. He was building a kingdom and growing the kingdom's influence. He was a king, so therefore he was busy. He was building his kingdom, not only his kingdom, but he was also making treaties with other kingdoms. So his influence was even growing. He was making treaties with Egypt. He was making treaties with Tyre. He was making treaties with Persia. He was making even treaty with the Philistines. The Philistines were David's arch enemy, daddy's arch enemy. And what is Solomon doing? He's making a treaty because he's got this swagger about him. He's got this woo about him. He's got this ability. He's a, he's an incredible king. He's all, and this is his life. And this is his story. He is a busy kingdom climber family. And does he have a family? And we'll talk about his family in a little bit. A thousand wives worth. We talked about last week, took a little quick phone survey, ask you if these four words describe you. Busy, corporate, climbing, family. Now, again, I don't go back unpacking all those. I just ask you if two of the four describe you. Self-declaring, okay? If they don't describe you, they don't describe you. This is what you said. 63% of you said yes. Two of at least four of those words describe me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a busy guy, man. My, 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 my late, my plate is full. I'm a busy mom. I'm a busy worker in the, in the office, whatever. Busy, busy, busy. Corporate. I'm in a corporate society where I'm climbing and I'm progressing and I'm moving and I've got plans and I got a career pathway or a vocation pathway. If you heard me last week, I'm, I'm a climber in, in that I do, I have a dire- vision for, for, for the direction of my life and I have a family. That's, that's Solomon. Listen, Solomon could live in Northwest Arkansas and make it. Quite well. But at the same time, wake up exhausted. So what does Solomon do? Chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 2. I said in my heart. Now, stop right there. Anytime the only voice that you listen to is your own voice, you're just dumb. 
It's foolish. I said in my heart. So this is the plan. He's making his plan, not consulting outside sources. He's not getting wisdom from other godly people in his life. He's not asking God any questions. He's just saying, hey, listen, I think this is a good idea. I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That was the motto of his life. Just enjoy self. Bring on the pleasures. Now he's going to use this word pleasure no less than eight more times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Major theme that he's going to go on. But behold, this is also the word that he uses 39 times, also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Here's a man with all-out, hot-hearted pursuit towards being happy, and there's nothing wrong with being happy. Hear that again and again and again. But what I want you to see through Solomon is he did not complete the pathway on his own. There are three sequential steps, if you will, on the pathway pursuit to being happy. Jot them down. And listen, I'm going to give you so much information today, you're going to have to jot. If you've got chipmunk fingers and you can type like that, then you go ahead and do that. But if you otherwise, you're going to probably need to write this down. But here's the very first sequential step, path, if you will, in the pursuit of happiness. One is a self-reliant path. I can do this myself. And I think what, the, owning your own life is very important, okay? Being responsible for you is very important, If I hear another couple come in and say, I no longer love that person because they don't make me happy, I'm going to throw up in my mouth. Listen, it is not the chief aim of the person you're married to to make you happy. They will not. That's not their goal to make you happy. That may make you unhappy, but they're not chief goal to make you happy. You're going to have to choose that. You're going to have to figure that pathway out. And there is a bit of self-reliant on that. You're going to have to own yourself. You're going to have to own your pathway towards happiness. You're going to have to be there. But it's not, neither is it in the, the poem Invictus. I like Nelson Mandela, have studied him extensively, admire him uh, afar, but it, certainly. But the line that says, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul seems very secular humanistic that I can do it. It's all about me. I'm self-reliant. That's taking it a bit far, but that's exactly where Solomon was. By the way, Solomon didn't need your help, my help, or anybody else's help. He had figured it out. Remember, I, my, I said to myself, I don't need your advice. I don't need your input. I don't need you asking me questions. I got this figured out. That's how he lived his life. Very self-reliant. And now what did he do? How then did the self-reliant individual, as they do today, how do they go and find happiness? Well, there's several ways. He mentioned about four or five of them in this length of about 11 verses. So hang on to your hats. Here we go. Number one, substance. Many people, Solomon included, Turn to substance, something outside their body, a chemical that they put in their body to either mask over, to cover over, to fix, to cope with, to make them happy. But really, most of the substance like alcohol is actually a depressant, so it's not making them happy. It's just making them less unhappy. Get that. 
This is what he said in verse 3. I searched my heart. Again, he's just talking to himself. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, listening only to himself. And how to lay hold on folly. So basically, wherever the wine took him, he let it take him. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to under the heaven during a few days of my life. Listen, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to take it in. I Listen, I've heard it. And sadly, sadly, I've heard it. And I know you have and maybe some of y'all are living it. Because some people have to live, start their day with their mimosas and end their day with their cocktails. They start their day with their mimosas so that they can maybe um, help wake themselves up a little bit. They have to knock the edge off with their cocktails because they've had a stressful day. And maybe uh, once or twice a week, they got to get with the guys or the friends and they got to have their few drinks because they've got to make it right. Now, listen, I, I'm not a teetotaler. I, 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 I am not anti-alcohol, okay? Um, I've just seen what it's done to my own family. And what it has done to my own family, extended family, is that it creates a substance abuse, uh, a dependency that even the most white-collar, put-it-together kind of people don't even see it in themselves. And they may laugh and make fun and have a party, but we got to remember what Proverbs fourteen thirteen says, even in laughter a heart may be sad. Number two, He tried success. Success was certainly one of the descriptors if you were to look at the life of Solomon. No doubt. I don't even have time to unpack this. Let me just hit this as quick as I can. Verse 4 says, I made great works. Circle that big bowl because that's about as big as you can say is I was good at what I did. He was successful in real estate. He says he built houses in verse 4. He built houses. Now, you got to understand that when a treaty happened between these nations, that what he got in a treaty was one wife and two houses. Let's look at it. Egypt, treaty, one wife, two houses. One wife, two houses. How many houses did he have? I don't know, but he had 1,700 wives, 300 concubines. So he had a few houses out there too. This guy was a real estate mogul. He knew how to build houses. He was successful with land. It says in verse 4 through verse 6, I planted vineyards and gardens and so on and so forth. Read this for yourself when you get home. Verse 7, he had human resources. This guy had more people working for him than work in the Walmart that many of us work for. We all work for Walmart in some capacity here. 12,000 horsemen. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 25, 30,000 employees in various jobs, it says in 2 Kings chapter 5. This guy had a payroll. He had employees. He was successful. He was successful in livestock. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 that he had 4,000 stalls. In verse 7, it says, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves that were born in my house, and I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He could even compare himself to the Joneses. 
and say, I have more than they have. He was successful in his cash flow. Look at verse 8. Don't miss it. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. Silver and gold. Let's talk about gold. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, and you can read a lot about his history in 2 Chronicles 9, 1 Kings 1 to 11. Read that on your own. But this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 9, chapter 13 to 14, verse 13 to 14. It says, now the weight of gold, not silver and gold, just gold alone, which was to Solomon in one year. So his annual income in gold in one year was 666 talents of gold beside that which the traders brought. So there's even more somehow. What is 666 talents of gold? I'm glad you asked. I did the math on it this week. One talent of gold was worth 88 pounds. 600, some of y'all are doing the math. One pound, one talent, 88 pounds of gold. That means he had 58,608 pounds of gold. Today, we don't measure gold in pounds. We measure it in ounces, and there are 16 ounces in a pound. Again, some of y'all are doing the math faster than I can spit it out here. He was paid in one year 934,728 ounces of gold, Solomon, in one year. That would make his market value, as of Thursday, the market gave the value on gold of 1,290 per ounce. That gives his market value of 1.20966910. There's more numbers than I can count billion dollars in one year. He was worth more than the Amazon CEO, the richest man in the world. He made more in one year. This guy was making bank. And yet, was he happy? There was so much wealth in his life that silver was as common as the stones in Jerusalem, it says in Second Chronicles 9. So let's not even add up the silver. Let's just add up the gold. This is how wealthy he was. So he had success. He had substance. Now he also tries status. Status. Verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me. I became great. That's an understatement. Greatly rich. But now he also becomes great in his influence and connection with people. He makes treaties, again, I say with Persia, with uh, Egypt, with Tyre, with, um, with the Philistines. He, Queen of Sheba comes to him to seek his counsel and his wisdom. He was a person of status. But he also was a person who tried to get happiness through senses, through his senses. Some people struggle with taste because they put too much in the pie hole, and that's how they try to find happiness. Therapeutic eating, if you will. Some people, it's, it's through what they hear. Some people, it's what they touch. Solomon had a problem. Even though he had everything going for him, he had a problem with his eyes. He liked a beautiful woman. He liked a beautiful woman so much that he, again, he had a thousand women at his disposal. He didn't need pornography. He had a thousand women. He had a thousand women at his disposal, 700 wives, 300 concubines. It says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, that Solomon loved many foreign women. Think about that. 
What is that a description of? But a person who couldn't be content with one. That he loved many foreign women. Is he struggling? Yes, he's struggling because what he's getting is he's getting everything he wants and somehow he's not getting it all. He's still not there yet. If you want to add up your life, if you want to answer this question, what is my life worth? I said this back in December. I want to say it again. Add up everything in life that money can't buy and death can't take away. And that is the sum total of your life. Life principle. Add up everything in your life that money can't buy and death can't take away. And that's your life. What's it worth? He was a man of great self-resilience and the ability to create environments, to to be successful in his own role, in his own life. He was self-reliant. He could get there. But there's another thing, another sequence that happens here that you cannot miss, okay? Because what happens is when you get all of this and you're still unhappy, you got a problem. When you have success and you have status and you have substance and you still can't find a new job and find a new wife and find a new, uh, a, a new drug and find a new this and, and you still can't get it, there's a problem. So what it does, if you're smart, it will send you to the next step the next step in the pathway to happiness, which is self-reflection. It's when you have to stop the game of life. You have to stop the madness long enough to sit still, which is really hard for people who've got a lot of spinning plates. But you've got to stop and you've got to listen. And you've got to go inside and you've got to reflect. And that's what Solomon does. But the problem is, is he only listens to himself. When you look at him, he will say in this passage, in this one chapter alone, every time I read it, I come up with a different number. So somebody please read it for me and tell me the number. Is it 30? Is it 36? Is it 39? But 30 plus times he says, I, me, myself. He is all about himself. Self-reflection, trying to figure it out. I, me, my, myself. I, me, my, myself. He is trying to figure out his life. He is in self-reflection mode. Verse 11, where he kind of ends this whole rant. He says this, I considered, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, 39 times this word says, is in Ecclesiastes, all was vanity and striving after the wind. Consider your life. The word there in the Hebrew is literally means to turn. You need to turn from this focus of chasing and pursuing. You need to turn for a moment. You need to get real honest with yourself. And please listen, listen. From this side of the room to this side of the room, please listen to this. Some of y'all are going to have to stop the madness long enough to reflect. We've talked in here about doing an audit, audit on your time, audit on your life. Ask yourself these questions. What's working? What's not working? What's missing? What's confusing? If you don't do it, you'll never figure it out. Take the time. Stop the madness so that you can reflect. Because I said it last week. I want to say it again this week. Your success may become your greatest failure. Solomon had it all. 
In verse 15, you could hear in the tone of his voice and his heart, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. This is the wise guy. But he's saying, listen, it's going to happen to me also. What's going to happen to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He was at this point of just kind of, it all kind of kind of collapsing, imploding, not exploding, imploding in on him. And he had everything going for him, but yet it's imploding in on him. I had a great uncle, great uncle, who, one, he was a doctor in Texas, and everything's bigger in Texas, right? So he had a big salary in Texas. He was a good doctor in Dallas area. And he had this eye for kind of venture capital stuff. And this is before I really understood venture capitalists, all that kind of stuff. And in hindsight, and or years later, I would understand it. But he could kind of get on the ground floor of some things. I'm sure he lost money. I never saw that. But he also made money. He was also very generous. I love this uncle, not because of his generosity, because of he, he, he was a family guy, it appeared. And he had it going for him, and he loved his family, and he helped me, helped my brother, helped my other brother. He's, he's helped all of our family out. He helped me go to college by paying for half of my college at a private Christian university. What he said, whatever the school doesn't pick up, whatever scholarships, whatever grants you can't get, I'll pay the other, I'll pay half, and then you pick up the other half. I was incredibly grateful to him. But as Uncle Chet is his name, he's gone to be with the Lord now. He, um, he lost his family. He was very successful, but there was some internal things in him. And whenever he had this cycle, he was on the same sequence that you were on, that I'm on, that you're on, that we're all on. He's climbing, he's self-reliant, he's climbing to the top. And then all of a sudden, boom, family falls apart. He's at the bottom. He goes into self-reflection mode. When you hit self-reflection mode, you can go multiple ways. One of the bad ways is you can just start climbing again. Or another bad way is you can go even more internal. Started getting into Eastern mysticism, started listening to counselors. It just told him, oh, you just need to make yourself happy, make yourself happy, and just become more inward, more inward, more inward. And sadly, that's where he, he went. And I look at him as an example of great generosity, great Great in many ways, but a sad story of a person who could never be happy even though he had so much. George Bernard Shaw said it like this, there are two sources of unhappiness in life. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting it. And you realize you didn't get happiness. Don't miss this verse, verse 17. Punch the person next to you if they're asleep, verse 17. This is the sum total of his life. Whenever he sits down to pen and paper, so I hated life. I considered my life, so I hated life. Just let that sit there for a moment because that may be you. It's not what you thought it was going to be. The marriage is not where it's going to, you thought it was going to be. The kids are not what you thought they'd be. The income is not what you thought it would be. I hate life. 
I'm not as happy as I want to be. I hate life. How do you get out of that? How does he get out of that? I think about the the French uh, humanist Voltaire who said, I hate life and yet I'm afraid to die. When you have done self-reliant and self-reliant fails you, and it will, you'll come down to to a point of self-reflection. In self-reflection time, it's time to really do inventory and figure life out. This next week, I'm going to be doing something. We're just giving you tools. You can take advantage of them or you can ignore me, okay? Making spaces, small groups. Ignore me if you want to. Take advantage of it if you want. Financial peace. Take advantage if you want. Ignore me if you want. All opportunities, we're just putting them out there. You choose. I'm going to be writing my IDP this next week. We'll call it around here IDP. It stands for Intentional Discipleship Plan. I'm going with God this week, going to pull aside, going to get inside my own heart and head. And I'm going to say, God, where are you going? Where are you taking me? What are you doing in me? I'm going to take his word open. I'm going to start writing out, God, what are you doing in me? It's a tool online. You can do it or you can not do it. But I'm just saying that you've got to take time in your life when you're in that point of self-reflection. You've got to figure it out. Because hopefully you will end up at the third, which is the self-surrender path. When you get off your path and you get on God's path. Now, I know we don't like surrender. We don't like self-surrender because that means we're giving up. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about giving up. This isn't giving up. It's giving over. I'm not talking about giving up your life. Talking about giving it over to a better plan, to a better maker, to the one who made us and created us and designed us. Listen, this is the world that we're living in. Anxiety, depression, suicide, suicide gestures, uh, gesturing, personality disorders, obsessive behaviors, eating disorders, panic attacks, alcohol, other drug abuse, phobias, psychosis. These are not diagnosis on the verge of extinction. Instead... These are maladies seem to be thrive in our society like weeds in a garden and they all drain us dry emotionally. We're not getting better. We're getting sometimes sicker. How do I get out of this cycle? Self-reliant, self-reflection, falling out, hating life. I think I'm gonna have to move to a different path. Self-surrender. God, you got a plan? What's your plan? Let's finish this chapter up by looking at verse 24, 25, and 26. Because what? You read Ecclesiastes and you might get depressed. You might need some Xanax or something. I don't know what you take for that. But you might need something after reading Ecclesiastes. But I promise you, he's not trying to do that to us. As you go to verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and define enjoyment in his toil. That wasn't, he just got through talking about toil and, and vanity and getting tired and its emptiness. And now he's saying, that, Hey, we ought, you ought to find joy and, and eat and drink. Is he some, some kind of fatalistic kind of response? Just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. Is that what he's doing? There's not fatalism here. No, he's pointing us to joy. He says, Find enjoyment in what you're doing, in the life you're living. Find it. Where do I find this secret sauce? This also I saw is from the hand of 
God. Score it, underscore it, bold it, whatever you got to do. You want to figure out where it is? Not going to be through anything you're going to do. It's going to be through the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat, who has, who can have enjoyment? Is it even possible? And by the way, don't miss this. This word in verse 24, enjoyment, is not the same word as in verse 25, enjoyment. Even though in English it sounds the same, it's two different Hebrew words. The first one is the Hebrew word tov. If you were writing it out and transliterating it, it would be T-O-B in a transliteration form. And it's just the general word in the Hebrew language for good. It's used 480 different times. It just means good. All things good. Good environment, good situation, good. I like good. I'll take good any day of the week. But this, this is actually a different Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word has. And it means, it's only used three times in the Old Testament, and it means a rush of joy, a rush, an emotion that comes over you. You mean that God actually can make my life good and he can make me feel good? He can give, make my life happy and he can give me happiness? Absolutely. It's from the hand of God. But one more time. In three verses, he uses the word joy. In some form or fashion as it's translated for us. In verse 26, he says, For this one who pleases him, I'll come back to that word, pleases him, God has given him knowledge and joy. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given him business and gathering and collecting and grinding it out day after day, <sighs> only to give the one pleases God, who pleases God. That's the one he gives joy to. That word joy here is a different Hebrew word. It's the word shama, and it means celebration, party, jubilation, soul joy. Something that not only is my life good, not only is it enjoyable and I'm getting emotion, but inside, inside of me, jubilation is coming up from the inside out. Psalm 86 verse 4 uses the same word. Being joyful in you, to your servant's life. Because I turn to you, Lord. I find real joy, real happy, real sustainability in my life, real reproducible happiness in my life whenever the Lord is in my life and I am bringing pleasure to him. It's not giving up. It's giving over. I want to close with this because I got to take you back to the Hebrew word tov one more time. Verse 26, if you'll notice, it says this, for to the one who pleases, that's the Hebrew word tov, the same word good back a few moments ago, pleases him. And it literally means to cause a smile to appear. That is really cool. That literally, think about that. My life could be lived in such a way that the God of the universe might literally smile when he looks at me. That is cool. And what does the God who smiles when he looks at me because he's looking at my life with pleasure, what does he do? He gives me something. 
gives me wisdom. He gives me knowledge. He gives me joy. Shama. But to the sinner, he gives business and gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. It comes down. You can live in the cycle. Self-reliance, self-reliance. I can do this myself. I'll figure joy out. I'll figure happiness out. I'll buy more, eat more, do more things, but whatever. You can live in the I hate life mode or you can get off that and get on self-surrender and let God do his work in you. I wonder in a room this size, this many people, how many are living this cycle and not on the pathway of the joy-filled life that he wants to give you.